Lord, we long for that day. We long for that day where there is no more darkness, where there is no more sin, where there is no more suffering. We long for that day when this world that you have made reaches again the goal for which you made it. We long for that day when we reach the goal for which you made us, even to be with you and to represent you to your creation. Thank you so much that you are coming back. Help us to live in light of that and to live with you even now. Father, please speak this morning. Um, we dare to ask that you would speak through, through me and to each and every one of us. Amen. You might remember that uh, one of the things we're doing over the course of these two or three months, I'll just move away from that other stand because I will impale my back on it otherwise. One of the things we're doing over the, last, over the, the next two or three months, we started about three weeks ago, is looking at a series of how we relate to God. And we saw a few weeks back that one of the options for us is to try and live life under God. And it sounds like a good Christian way to live lives. I will live under God. I will live a good life. I will live a holy life. I will go to church. I will do the right things. But we saw that, that actually a life under God is a life which is based on the idea of trying to get God to owe us. God, I've done the right stuff. I've done all the things. I'm a good person. You owe me, God. Bless me. It's like we're trying to poke a stick at God and say, right, pour out your blessings. And we expect Him to act. We, we insist on, in that way of thinking on rituals and morality to keep God happy. Which implies, of course, that if life isn't going well with me, then I haven't been good enough for God. And so if my life doesn't feel fantastic, then the person to blame is not God because it's me because I haven't done enough to make God happy with me enough. Totally not a Christian view at all. God's not impressed on how good we look. God is impressed by whether we know Him, whether we know Jesus, whether we trust Him, whether we walk with Him. God doesn't bless us or curse us depending on how good or bad we are. God has blessed us because He sent His Son Jesus to die. That's what we saw two weeks ago. So that's not a good option to try and say, if I'm good enough, God will be happy with me. That way is the way to depression and destruction because nobody can make God happy enough in ourselves. Hands up if you're good enough for God. Nobody? Fantastic. So there is an option. If I'm not going to live under God like that, perhaps I can live over God. Perhaps I can live without God. Now there are, of course, we know about the atheists and come along to the John Lennox talk if you want to know how to address things like this. There are those who argue that without religion the world would be a far better place. John Lennon, his song, Imagine, imagine the place where there is no nations and no religion and everything is going to be at peace. Because without religion, the world will be a better place, wouldn't it? It's true that religious people 
can do and have done horrible things in the name of God. And Christians, Christians have done horrible things in the name of Jesus. But if you take away religion, well, humanity is just as evil, aren't we? Um, in the last century, if you, and even today, if you think of some of the, the most horrendous things that happened, they happened in secular atheistic societies. Societies where God is not welcome. So the Cultural Revolution in China, 60 million people killed. Uh, the Khmer Rouge, Atheism reigns, 2 million dead. North Korea, 2 million dead. Just because you don't have religion doesn't mean that everything gets better. So, did you come today to have a talk about atheists? Who wants to talk about atheists this morning? What? Oh. Well, in that case, Mark, over to you. <laughs> no! No! <laughs> We're not looking at atheists today, but we are perhaps looking at what are effectively Christian atheists. Or more correctly, we're looking at Christian-style deists. Now, what is a deist? A deist is someone who believes that God exists, perhaps even believes that God made everything, that everything exists because God made it to exist but also believe that in terms of everyday life, everyday day-to-day practice, God, for all intents and purposes, is absent. He's uninvolved. It's, you might have heard of the watchmaker analogy. The idea that God has made this very intricate universe, uh, springs and If you ever look at an old-fashioned watch, it's incredible. You open it up and it looks absolutely incredible. And then the idea there is that God has made this incredible universe. He's wound it up. So one day it's going to unwind completely and everything is going to stop. But he's wound it up and then he's gone, oh, that's nice. And he stepped away. And the watch is just ticking away. And so God made it. Yes, God's powerful. Yes, God is the one who can do anything he wants. Yes, but is he involved? No. That's what deism says. And it's possible to be a kind of Christian, a life over God Christian, I'm not sure it is Christian, who sees God in this way, who sees God as, as the one who gives us principles for life, who, who sets up the laws of nature, who is the watchmaker, who has stepped away. But in practice, if you think of God that way, it's the same as if you were an atheist. Because ultimately, you've got very little room for God in your life. God doesn't have a practical impact on your existence. Now, I'm, I'm suspecting that most of us are going, oh, that's not me. But it's a bit insidious. We, we live in an age where, where we are very good at finding the rules and principles and laws that God has put into uh, His creation. Um, we tend to think when something happens, rather than thinking, what is God doing or God is acting, we tend to think, "Ha! Huh, what physical rule is explaining what is happening? So when we get sick, what's the first thing you do when you get sick? After collapsing... 
go to the doctor. Because we know you get sick because you've got a virus or you've got a germ or there's something wrong with your DNA or whatever. DNA, if you've got something wrong with your DNA, it's probably quite serious. But we know how people get sick, so we go to a doctor. Now, in ages past, which was more of a life under God thing, you'd go, well, we know why people get sick. It's because God's angry. But today we think, no, we don't need to think about God at all when we get sick. The first thing we do is we go to the doctor. Look, when we get really, 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 really sick and the doctors don't know what to do, then we go to God. But the first thing we do is we go to the doctor. We, we pop a pill. And the idea uh, is that if we understand how the universe works, we can control it. Uh, and if we're in control of life and the universe and everything, then we have nothing to fear. Isn't that wonderful? Well, actually, we're still driven by fear, I think. Fear drives us to seek control. The last time we looked at life under God, we saw that we were driven by fear. We want God to be happy with us, and He has to be happy with us. And I'm afraid that He's not, so I'm going to do better. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be a nicer person because I'm afraid that God's going to smite me. This time, if we live life over God, well, we're still afraid of, of things going wrong, of the future, of what's going to happen. But instead of turning to, to God or to superstitions, we turn to science, we turn to rules, we turn to principles. And you get Christians who look at this sort of thing and you go, and they go, well, God made everything. God set up all these principles. The reason things go wrong with people is that they are living by the wrong set of principles. They are living according to the principles of science or politics or Oprah or Dr. Phil. And instead they should be living by the principles of the Bible. Because if you live by the principles of the Bible, then your life will be perfect. I wonder if you've heard uh, the acronym for Bible. Do you know what Bible stands for? Have, have you heard it? There, there are those. This is pathetic. The Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. So many Christians, actually in practice, we approach the Bible as an instruction manual for how to live now. And yes, we can get fantastic principles. We can get fantastic instructions from the Bible. If you live based on the, your life based on the principles found in the Bible, you will probably have a pretty nice life. But that's not the point of the Bible. The Bible doesn't want us to derive principles to have a pretty nice life. If that's what we use the Bible for, then we've missed the point completely. The Bible is about who God is and what He's done for us and how He wants us to be with Him forever and all the things that He's done to make that possible. The Bible's not about us and how we live a good life first and foremost. It's got that in there. But, but the main point of the Bible is for us to know God. The Bible, uh, rather than basic instructions before leaving earth, the Bible is more like a love letter. 
It's God's love letter to us. And so easy though, rather than reading the Bible as a means for knowing God and, and growing our relationship with Him, we, we, we open the Bible and we search and we go, here are some principles for, for how I can live my life, how I can control my world. There it is in Proverbs, uh, bring a child up in the way of the Lord and He will not depart from them. Okay, I must bring up my child in the way of the Lord and He will not depart from them. Perfect, done. Principle applied. Okay, what else? Okay, Proverbs is really good if you want principles, by the way. Do not answer back to a fool. Okay, I'm not going to answer back to a fool. It's going to be fantastic. Answer a fool. Oh, that, okay. There's two principles that seem to contradict each other. Okay. But anyway, I will answer and then I won't answer. And oh, oh uh, what, what else? What else? Okay, um, all these principles. And you spend your whole life trying to find the principles for how to live a good life. And we replace a relationship with God for a relationship with the Bible. We love the book more than the author. Life over God means reducing faith to principles and laws and applicable instructions. Whatever applies to my life now. And so we, we come up with, with programs. Um, five steps to a godly marriage. Raising children God's way. The biblical laws of leadership. Kingdom principles for financial success. You know, there's even a book out there that tells you how to be a Jesus-style leader that looks at Jesus' life and extracts all the principles of why Jesus was successful as a leader. And if you follow all these principles, you are guaranteed to be a successful leader. Because Jesus was a successful leader, he obviously followed the principles perfectly. And if you follow the same principles, everything will be peachy. Now, do you spot the problem with, with these kind of things? Look, there might be some decent stuff in there. But the problem is that there is a potential for, you don't actually need to have a relationship with God to keep the principles. You can live a Christian life. You can be a godly leader. You can raise your kids God's way without knowing God. You can have a godly marriage and God's looking out, knocking on the door going, I'd love to be part of this. You can thank God, perhaps. You can praise Him and worship Him for giving us these wise principles for living life. But you don't actually need Him involved because He's already given us the instruction manual. My brother, um, one of the first cars he bought, he bought an instruction manual for how to do all of the engine work. The point is, if you've got the instruction manual... Why bother with the mechanic? Of course, most of us are not very good at following the instructions, as Mark pointed out. And we desperately need the mechanic. If you wanna if you wanna listen to some words that give you a hint that someone is in this life over God, perhaps we don't need God, th there's some language 
that sometimes gives us a hint. Listen carefully if somebody says, God always. God never. God only. This is perhaps the kind of language that seems to say, we've got God figured out. If this happens, then God must do that. Kind of like a machine. If I pray three times a day, God will do this. If I act like Jesus to the people at work, God will do this. God always does that because that's who God is. We think we've got God so figured out that we can trust in the rules of how God works rather than trust God. You know, it's so easy to trust in the rules. Relationships are much more complicated. We've got this story here in Numbers chapter 20 of Moses. The man of God, the God, the man who, whom God used to uh, lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You remember the story of, of how God sent his people to Egypt initially because there was a famine in the land. They stayed there. They flourished. They grew powerful. Eventually, they grew so powerful that the people of Egypt uh, got a bit scared, and they decided, what are we going to do? These people are getting stronger, and so they subjugated them. They, they enslaved them. Uh, it's 400 years that they spent in the land of Egypt, the last bit in absolute horrible circumstances, being abused by the Egyptians, crying out to God, God, are you still there? Are you going to save us? God hears them. He hears their cries. He sees their slavery and he acts to save them. He, he sends Moses as his agent. <coughs> Story of Moses, incredible. But in the end, he sends Moses back from the desert where he's been hiding from the Egyptians to Egypt. He says, take your staff in your hand, Moses. You're going to do amazing things. You will lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. And, and Moses takes his staff and, and things happen. He, he strikes the water of the Nile and it turns to blood. He he lifts his staff up and we've got the plagues coming down. All sorts of things happening as God uses Moses to free his people. They come eventually freed after ten plagues. They come through across to the Reed Sea or the Red Sea and they're standing there and God is blocking the way between the Egyptian army behind and the sea ahead and, and says to Moses, Moses, lift up your staff. And Moses lifts up his staff and the, the river, the, not the river, the Red Sea dries up and the whole nation of Israel crosses safely and they get to the other side and the sea crashes down and wipes out the Egyptian army. Amazing stuff. And then they go on a little bit and they're in the desert and they come eventually to a, a, a place where there is absolutely no water. If you've got your Bibles, just jump quickly over to Numbers chapter 17. Uh, Number 17? I think it's Exodus 17. Do, 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 do. Exodus 17. Sorry about that. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin. They moved from place to place, and eventually they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water there for the people to drink. And so once again, they complained to Moses and said, Give us water to drink, Moses! 
Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? Why are you testing the Lord? But they were tormented by thirst and they continued to argue with Moses. And said, why did you bring us out here? Are you going to kill us all out here? Moses cried out to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people and take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile. Call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come gushing out. And then the people will be able to drink. And so Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Um, If you see pictures in Sunday school books, it's usually this nice gentle little stream pouring out of a rock. Um, Army of about 600,000 people, about. Wives and children, one each. Let's be, so 1,800, 1.8 million people, plus some livestock, so... Let's sort of add that up. So this is not a little trickle of water coming from the rock. This is like a fire hydrant on full blast. Gushing out, pouring out. In that case, Moses cried out to God. God said, strike the rock, Moses. And Moses was probably like, okay, this is weird, God. Take my stick, I'll hit the rock. Water comes out. Numbers 20 is a similar scene. Exodus 17 is right near the beginning of the journey of the Israelites. What happened is that they they went right to the edge of the promised land where God was taking them. God sent, Moses sent some spies in. They came back. The people said, no, those people are too scary. We're not going in. God said, fine, you're not going in. And for the next 40 years, they wandered around the desert until all that generation died except for uh, two people, Caleb and Joshua. Now, we come in Numbers 20. They are back at that same spot on the edge of the promised land. Now, what do we find? Moses! Thirsty! Why are you leading us to evil places, Moses? Are you bringing us here to kill us? Egypt was better. Yes, we were slaves, but Egypt was better. We're thirsty. They come out with this, this actually quite appropriate request. Moses, we're thirsty. But then they tack on all the little grievances. In fact, I look at these people here and I see verse 3 of Numbers 20. What do they say? They say to Moses, The people blamed Moses and said, If only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. I suspect that these people coming to Moses were of the opinion that God had chuffed off. God wasn't with them anymore, they thought. At least not in any meaningful way. He was very much this kind of, he started it all off and then he stepped away kind of atmosphere. What do they say? They say, we wish we had died with our brothers when the Lord's anger burst out. It's probably referring to something that happened in Numbers 16. Uh, Abiram, Dathan, and Korah. Uh, basically, go and read it at home. Uh, these three men had rebelled against Moses and Aaron and God. And God's glorious presence had appeared. And the whole of people saw God. And an amazing thing happened. Uh, the tents of these three people and their families were there. And the earth opened up, swallowed the tents, closed up again. And everyone was like, oh, God's here. God's here. 
and there were some people there standing in front of the tabernacle, even though God had said, only these people may offer incense to me, they said, we're good enough. And they were hanging incense and burning it and probably going, ah, ah, ah. And fire came out and wiped them out. And the people now come to Moses and says, Moses, we wish we'd died then. God was there then. Now it's up to you, Moses, and you've led us to this place where there's no water. Where's God, Moses? Where's this powerful God who acted then in our father's generation? Moses knew, of course, that God was there. God appeared to him every day, at, or just about every day, at the, the tent of meeting. Back in Exodus 17, Moses thought the people, right at the start of the journey, that the people were so angry they were ready to stone him. And again here at Numbers 20, at the end of the journey, I'm sure he's thinking, these people are about to kill me. They are ready to riot. And, and also, if you think of poor old Moses at this point, his sister has just died. He's at a low point in himself anyway. His sister has just died. And now everybody's going, Moses, you've done this. You've brought us out here to die. Moses turns to God for help. God says to him, okay, Moses, you know what? I'm amazed God doesn't say I'm going to punish the Israelites because they, they should trust me. God just says, okay, you know, fair enough. They need water. He says, take your staff, go out, gather everyone together. And speak to the rock. Why the staff? The staff, symbol of, of the authority of God, the presence of God. And Moses does the first bit. He takes his staff, he gathers the people. And, and then you just see Moses' gears grinding in his brain as he thinks, you know what, I'm, I'm facing, face, facing a mob that is furious, that, that probably going to kill me if this doesn't work. And God wants me to speak to a rock. Hello, rock. How are you today? We're very thirsty. I command you to give us water. Let's be honest. Who here would speak to the rock? You've got a mob of people looking at you saying, we are really hating you right now. We are so close to killing you. And you're going to turn to a rock and say, rock, water, please. Moses. <laughs> he needed guaranteed solutions. He needed water to come from that rock. And so he spoke to the people. You rebels. And look at what he says. You see what he says? Must we bring you water from this rock? Here he is standing, Moses and Aaron, looking at the people going, yeah, you've blamed me. Now I'm going to sort out your problems, aren't I? Must I do all the work again? And he takes his staff and he hits the rock twice. I don't know why he hit the rock twice. I'd love to have seen there, but... I imagine it didn't work the first time. But he hits the rock twice. Because in the past, that's what works. The principles of getting water to people lost in the desert. 
take the staff of God, hit a rock. When you hit a rock with the staff of God, water pours out. Moses thinks, I know how God works. He told me to speak to the rock. But look, we know when you hit the rock with the staff, water comes out. That's the principle. I read someone who said, if Moses was alive today, you'd be able to go into Kurong and find a book, 52 Principles for Getting Waters from Rocks, written by Moses. And God, in verse 12, looks at Moses and pinpoints and says to him, Moses, I know what it is that caused your rebellion. You didn't trust me enough to show my holiness to the people of Israel. Rather than trusting God when God said, do something, Moses went, I know what works. I don't actually need you here, God, because I know what to do in this circumstance. And then, of course, he claimed the credit instead of God. Was he effective? The water came. After hitting the water, the rock twice, water came out abundantly. It gushed out. But God did the Spirit not because Moses followed the right formula. God, God did the miracle not because Moses followed the right formula, but because God's kind and the people needed water. There is no hit a rock with a stick and water comes out principle, even if Moses thought that there was. And you know, humanly speaking, I bet the crowds looked at Moses and get, wow, you really did bring us water, Moses. You're incredible. <coughs> Humanly speaking, Moses looked successful. He'd followed the principles. He'd done a fantastic job. The people must have been impressed. But, but God looked at him and said, Moses, I am unimpressed with that. I wanted you to trust me, and you didn't. You know what? If people had seen water coming out from a word, they would have been overawed at me, and instead now they're looking at you. And I suspect that's even why God said, don't hit the rock again. God, God told him to hit the rock in Exodus 17. Why not in Numbers 20? Because God didn't want people to draw this link saying, hit a rock and water comes out. God wanted people to draw the link, trust God and you will be provided for. What makes... This kind of life over God so attractive is our need for control. Um, and it's often driven by fear. Moses was afraid of the people, and so he took control by using the staff, by going back to tried and tested principles. And so often in life we want solutions, and so we look for what works, what is effective. What has worked for others must work for us. But if we go along that line and we try and live according to principles rather than with God, when something goes wrong or the outcome doesn't happen, who is to blame? Me. And if we have to perfectly manage every variable and make sure we keep all the principles, that doesn't make fear any less. It makes fear worse. I'm going to finish here. Religious leaders in Jesus' days were the experts at drawing principles from the Bible. But they didn't end up knowing God and they didn't end up recognizing him when he stood right in front of them.
Jesus looked at them one time. We see this in uh, John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus looked at them and said, You search the scriptures because they think they, you think they give you eternal life. Get the principles, follow them, you will live forever. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. If we are reading the Bible to find out how to live today, we are missing the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to make us go, wow, God is wonderful. And I will trust him because he works in so many marvelous ways and because he has proven himself trustworthy. Jesus doesn't want us to live a Christian-style life. He wants us to know him and to be with him. Life under God is a flop. Life over God is a flop. The only solution? Knowing God. We'll continue this in about two weeks' time. But for now, Mr. McKillivray. Worship his heart. 
strength is failing me and draws near and my time has come still my soul will sing your praise unending ten thousand years and then Instructions say no. 